October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number nine, Printing. Last week, we covered a few of the conferences that Joseph, James, and Ellen attended in order to bring unity to the fledgling group of New England Adventists. This was the initial effort of our triumvirate to bring unity and identity to a small group of people who mostly shared a belief in the Seventh-day Sabbath and the soon second coming of Jesus. We'll call them Sabbatarian Adventists at this point. They've moved from being Millerites to plain old Adventists to Sabbath-keeping Adventists, and we're getting to Seventh-day Adventists. Anyway, the final conference in 1848, held at a believer's home in Dorchester, Massachusetts, resulted in a strong conviction that these conferences were just not enough. They were expensive to get to, and only a few people ever met there at any one time. They needed to start publishing. Publishing was not an epiphany, as we know the Millerite paper Daystar published O.R.L. Crozier's Explanation of the Sanctuary. The then-single Ellen Harmon published an account of her first vision in 1846, which James and Bates's friend Gurney paid for. And Bates, of course, published a few tracts himself, including the one on Sabbath. And when I say tracts, you're probably imagining the tiny folded pieces of paper that sneaky Christians try to pawn off on your car window while you're shopping. They have like 30 Bible verses on them in a size 3 font. But no, no, we're not talking about those tracts. We're talking about the old school tracts, the ones that are something like the size of a small book. Bates's latest tract at this point was 80 pages long. Tracts were these kind of small books, and not quite length of a novel, but definitely more than what we think of today. Try sticking that under someone's windshield wipers. Well, in 1847, the founders jointly published A Word to the Little Flock. This 24-page pamphlet begins with James noting that he would have published through the Daystar, but it had closed up by then. A Word to the Little Flock was a groundbreaking little publication for our group. James White unveiled what is essentially an early Adventist view of last-day events. He outlined a clear and decisive interpretation of these events, making smooth the rocky theological landscape of the post-Millerite movement. Ellen White chipped in with a few visions, and Joseph Bates wrote his story about how he came to believe in Ellen White's visions. Reading this paper 170 years later, it reads kind of like a one-sided Facebook wall. Each of the three authors posted things while responding to other people's comments. Strangely, no selfies, though. I'm overselling it a bit, but print was far more interactive and personal back then. Even still, a word to the little flock only had a short life. Printing was expensive, and there was not yet a vision or a burden to do it sustainably. There were hundreds of Millerite papers that rose and fell over the years. And printing was an incredibly tough thing to do, and, besides, everybody is poor. After the Dorchester Conference, James agreed he should publish something. So he set out to mow hay again. After all, isn't this what he did last summer in order to raise money to attend more conferences? Well, after he left the house to mow, and by mow I mean swinging that grim reaper scythe like a boss, Ellen had another vision. James was told and ran home. The message was that he shouldn't be mowing hay like a boss, but he should print. Okay, James said, but how are we going to pay for all this because that's why I was going out to mow hay in the first place? She told him to step out on faith, that money would just appear for them. 
To that, Joseph Bates would have said, Amen, go out on the limb for God, which would have totally freaked out his wife. James and Alan had moved to Rocky Hill, the site of the first conference, to stay with Albert Belden. Alan was about to give birth to their second child, and as James worked night and day on printing, she'd have the support of the Beldens. In Middletown, about eight miles away, a printer had agreed to print a thousand copies of a little periodical paper called The Present Truth. The printer would do this on credit, briefly sinking James into debt, but I guess that was okay because God and stuff, you know. James was human. We all want God to give us the money first, while God wanted James to go on acting as if he already had the money, trusting that it would follow. That's what we call faith, boys and girls. Printing the present truth was a good fit for James. He was a born organizer and editor at heart, and in many ways the printing of a small paper served as a natural move for a few reasons. First, it extended the ministry of James and Ellen. The whole last year they ran around New England attending conferences and encouraging believers. The paper would enable them to do that, and more, from home. Second, it furthered the development of these Sabbath-keeping Adventists as a community. They now had a semi-official publication to point to, a platform for conversation and development, though the semi-official nature of that would soon become a huge problem with a certain retired sea captain. Like a word to the little flock some two years earlier, the present truth was a cross between a blog and a bulletin board. Mainly there were articles, but also notices, announcements, and James's comments to specific people like Joseph Bates. If you were a believer in the outlying regions of New York, your issue of the present truth would be a powerful voice for your beliefs, tell you when the next conferences were, and acquaint you with other believers in the movement through the letters to the editor that they sent in. One believer named J.C. Bowles wrote in from far away Jackson, Michigan, to suggest the size of the paper be enlarged so that there would be more space for such letters. Bowles reasoned that, quote, it will be comforting to those who have already received the truth to hear of others in the faith. In another instance, a certain J.N. Andrews wrote in to offer his praise for the little paper, and we'll hear more from that guy a little later. The present truth was pretty creative. In one issue, James gave 20 reasons why he believes in the Sabbath. And, as a side note, James, you should have patented that whole list thing. You could have been the BuzzFeed of the 19th century. In another part, he role-played a dialogue between a Sabbath keeper and a generic Sunday-keeping pastor. He also had a section where he challenged his readers, presumably the unconvinced ones, lobbying leading questions at them in hopes of drawing them to his conclusions. In one issue, James wrote that the scattering of God's people occurred after 1844, but now it was time, five years later, for the gathering of God's people. That's what this paper meant to accomplish, and the scattering and gathering metaphor was foundational to Ellen and James's understanding of the movement's purpose at this juncture. As such, the paper was very evangelistic and provocative in nature, Believers were told to let James know which people in their town needed this paper, and he would send it to them free of charge. James managed to churn out four issues between July and September 1849. They were all pretty much on the topic of the Sabbath, and if you think it would be hard to write four whole issues on the Sabbath, go Google them and read them. How successful were they? Well, assuming James only had one print run of a thousand for the first three issues, 
it seems he only managed to mail out about 75% of them. Nevertheless, we should remember that there were only about 100 to 200 Adventists at this point, meaning that the vast majority of the papers went to other Christians. And it was a far cry from the Millerite movement, which really was the inspiration for the whole publishing thing, because they mailed out a whopping 8 million pieces of literature in their day. Printing was a good strategy for the mission these Adventists had, but it wasn't a good financial strategy. James was asking, in essence, that every Adventist who bought one issue also had to pay for nine issues for other people. It was a bold growth strategy, but given that most of these believers were on the poorer side, it was a tall order. While those first few issues were good and some donations came in, it just wasn't enough. James released no issues until December, when he dropped issue 5 and 6. Then there was another gap of a few months. And if you're looking to build subscribers to a newspaper or uh, a podcast, you can't leave massive gaps like that. James grew discouraged as 1850 dawned. Publishing was hard, grueling work. Those first four issues were published when the Whites lived in Rocky Hill, and James had to walk eight miles to the printer and eight miles to the post office. They moved to Oswego, New York, that fall after their second son, James Edson White, was born. That was a little more convenient, but having two kids now just made their financial strain all the worse. I have to admit, in an age without welfare or child tax credits, I constantly wonder how the Whites managed to pull this off, financially. If you could get a financial planner in a DeLorean and send them back to counsel the Whites, he'd probably go crazy. Let me get this straight. You have two kids, your wife doesn't work, and you've given up mowing hay, which actually worked really great for you last year, to attempt one of the most volatile businesses you could find? James, buddy, in my professional opinion, this is a terrible idea. See chart number two for details. That'll be $200. Thanks. Another problem James White faced in the winter of 1849 was the surprising opposition of Joseph Bates. Bates had published four tracts, or those small books, by now, and he really thought that was the way to go. His issue wasn't with the periodical itself, but with the idea of it being continually published, and its de facto semi-official nature. Bates realized this after the first four issues were published, and thought that publishing a paper made the Adventists just like every other church. Now, Bates' reasoning is a little bit murky for us today, but it seems that his real problem was with organization. This is an absolutely huge question that will dog the early Adventists for the next decade. How much do we organize as a church? Neither William Miller nor these Adventist pioneers set out to create a new denomination. The conventional wisdom was that organizing leads to ossifying, that is, if they were to incorporate and get a logo and pay clergy and do all of that, they would cease to be this flexible movement. They would establish beliefs and then find it incredibly difficult to change them because the whole attitude would set in that this is the way we've always believed and therefore it is sacred. Basically, they'd be recreating the experience many of them had had when they were kicked out of their own churches for believing in Miller's message. To many of the early Adventists, attempts at organizing, at creating hierarchy, was the first steps down a path that would make them like everybody else. And honestly, who needs one more Christian denomination? So to Bates, the semi-official nature of the publication smelled like organization, like a small group being able to tell the larger group what to believe and then, someday, enforcing it. The beauty of the journey thus far had been that the Adventists had been so open 
and willing to be corrected when they learned more. To become a denomination meant, to them, giving that up. To Bates, that fact alone was a denial of what it meant to be an Adventist. And of course, the irony is that Bates wasn't exactly the easiest guy to correct himself, but the point stands. On another level, Bates's problem with the present truth was a boiling point for a number of little fissures that had appeared between him and James White. White would write years later that, quote, the oldest preacher among us, meaning Bates, and almost the only fellow laborer we then had in the cause, refused for one year to write for our little paper, because to publish a paper was to do as others had done who had backslidden. It was hard tugging alone with such an influence to meet. End quote. Money was the lifeblood James needed to keep the present truth alive. And he wrote to Bates that December that they were going in two different directions and money was being wasted. Bates apparently wrote back and said that if money was being wasted, it was on James's paper, and that by spending his time printing instead of running around preaching, James was in fact delaying the second coming of Jesus, who was waiting for the gospel to go to the entire world. Ouch. When January 1850 came, the Whites were gathered together to pray with some other believers, when Ellen White had another vision. She told James that he simply had to write, 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 and that this paper could go where God's servants cannot go. James told Bates of the vision, and it lowered the tension through the spring and summer. But that fall, in October of 1850, things heated up again. This time, Ellen White entered the fray, writing critically of how stubborn Joseph Bates was, which, come on, didn't need much proof. But Ellen also rebuked James. She said that in the beginning he was purely zealous for the paper, but that as the conflict dragged on, he began to be suspicious of everything Bates did and said, and that this was wrong. Part of the reason the argument resurged is because James had taken to publishing yet another paper, the Advent Review, in August of 1850. White even publicly told people that Bates, who had never quite truly given up setting dates for Jesus to come, was wrong to do so. The conflict between James and Joseph was the most profound the fledgling group of Adventists had faced since the Great Disappointment. A rupture between the two men could have easily split the church in two. Two charismatic, headstrong leaders with two very different visions where the little money they had should go. That was a problem. And the problem was spurred on by personality. But it was inevitable, no matter who was involved. Because the real problem was authority. Who was in charge? Joseph Bates or James White? Big decisions needed to be made, and who would make them? As George Knight notes in his biography of Joseph Bates, quote, Up until 1849, Bates had been the acknowledged leader of the movement. He had developed the Sabbatarian theology, had called the initial meetings that brought the Sabbatarians together, and had, until recently, been the only one publishing. Knight suggests that Bates had run out of steam by 1850. All of the books he would publish after this time would simply be rehashing of the same themes, and he had few organizational skills. He was a ferocious conversationalist and quite persuasive, but those were gifts that were more useful in the early days when the church was smaller and depended on personal charisma. Knight is probably right to classify this conflict as a generational transference of leadership. The younger James White had ideas and energy and passion, while the older Joseph Bates was trying to keep a lid on him, 
Let's just keep doing what we've always been doing because it's worked. This isn't a matter of James being right and Joseph being wrong, however. Towards the end of James's life, he, too, had struggles in trusting what he had built to a younger generation. Heck, it wasn't even easy for Jesus to do this. Though neither Bates nor James seems to have understood it this way, or if they did, they didn't bring it up, it ended the way it probably should have, with James White more or less in the driver's seat of the movement. Bates would slowly get back on board, but there were minor squabbles that would never quite go away. Overall, their relationship would always be mutually supportive, owing to the fact that they were both sold out to the needs of the Adventist movement. The cause was simply too great, the stakes too high, and the work too important. So even when the men criticized each other, it was in the context of this movement, of this work. Joseph Bates wrote that he thought James had too nice of a horse once, implying that he wasn't using the group's money as efficiently as he should have. But the reality is that both men had put everything they had on this horse, no pun intended, and that they were going to see it through. Whatever personal or personality differences they had, they would consistently support each other because the movement needed them both. Putting the feud on the back burner for a moment, there are a couple of key events in 1849 to 1850 that we need to cover. First, as James was publishing issues 5 and 6 of The Present Truth in December of 1849, William Miller died. His health had begun to fail back in April, and when a meeting of Adventists who had stuck with his Albany conference was informed, they did something both touching and kind of goofy. They made a resolution and voted on it. Resolved that we deeply sympathize with our brother in his sorrows, and assure him that our love to him is steadfast. End quote. So the next time someone you love is sick, go ahead, get your friends together, elect a president and a secretary, and vote on a resolution. I think it'd make a great array of balloons and sympathy cards. Like, we are resolved to see you get well soon. That's money in the bank right there. Miller had been watching the 1848 European revolutions very closely, those same revolutions which Ellen White told Joseph Bates not to pay attention to, and thought that they might portend the coming of Jesus. But alas, the legendary preacher of Jesus' return wasn't to see him return. He died peacefully, surrounded by co-workers and family. And the following May, 1850, the annual conference of Miller's followers met and, you guessed it, once again voted a letter of condolence to Miller's wife, Lucy and I'm sure she appreciated it. At the same time that Miller's Adventists were voting a letter of condolences, James White noted in The Present Truth that Father Miller had passed away. Even though the Sabbatarian Adventists had split from Miller's Adventists at the Albany Conference, Bates and James and the whole team still held him in the utmost respect. In case you're interested, the Seventh-day Adventist Church now owns and preserves William Miller's home in Lowhampton, New York. If you're in the area, go check it out. Miller was the man, and even though we left him behind months ago, we'll miss him. Without him, there'd be no podcast, no Seventh-day Adventist church, and the 18th century American religious history would be just a little bit less colorful. Now, it's kind of hard to keep track of all the moving that's happened in 1849 to 1850, especially when our focus has been on James's publishing and the feud with Joseph Bates, we noted how the first few issues of The Present Truth were published in Middletown, Connecticut, 
before the whites moved in the autumn of 1849 to Oswego, New York, where issues 5 to 10 of The Present Truth were published. Well, the 11th and final issue of The Present Truth was published from Paris, Maine, where the whites had taken up residence with a certain Edward Andrews. The tale of the Andrews family is interesting, and it's worth taking a minute to briefly cover it. The Andrews family had invited the Stowell family to live with them sometime shortly after the Great Disappointment. Somehow, the Stowell's 15-year-old daughter happened to cross T.M. Preble's famous tract on the Sabbath, the same tract that persuaded Joseph Bates. The girl also was convinced, and it eventually found its way across the house into the hands of Edward Andrews's son, John Nevins. The good news is that the Sabbath idea spread in Paris, Maine, some seven families came to embrace it, but the bad news was that some of these people, including the Andrews family, were plagued with that fanaticism many Adventists came down with after the disappointment. Edward Andrews, for instance, thought it a sin to do any work. Yep, the man spent several years without working, a view that seems to have been shared by some of the other families in town. They would sell possessions or property or ask friends for loans to cover their expenses all because they thought Jesus would come at any moment, and they didn't want to be caught building their own kingdom down here. Some of the families, Edward's sister tells us, blew through three to four thousand dollars worth of property by doing nothing. Keep in mind that this is around the same time that James is breaking his back to get a few dollars to attend conferences. Well, Ellen White had a vision in 1849 that she needed to get James and head to Paris to confront this tomfoolery. She did, and many of the people there were shaken out of it. John Nevins Andrews considered this the moment of his conversion. And I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but both Uriah Smith, who we'll meet next week, and John Nevins Andrews both married women from one of these families. And boy, that'll be fun when we get to it. It's enough to know that the father of these girls that they married was somebody that Ellen White had to rebuke, and, while reproved, it never really sat well with him. Dun, dun, dun. The plus side of all this is John Nevins Andrews, who, for the love of Pete, we shall refer to again as J.N. Andrews. He was recruited for the cause. The cause, by the way, was desperately in need of trustworthy younger people to lead the second generation of the movement, Andrews was one of those guys, and the fact that the flagship university of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and my alma mater is called Andrews University should give you a clue as to his importance. As I said before, it was in August of 1850 that James White published a new paper, the Advent Review. The purpose of this paper was to emphasize those Millerite doctrines of the Second Coming and the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. James reprinted articles from the old Millerite leaders, including Miller himself. So the present truth emphasized the Sabbath part of the identity, while the Advent Review emphasized the Adventist part. The Advent Review only lasted five issues, and in November of 1850, just three months after it had started, the leaders in Paris, Maine agreed to start a third paper to combine the first two, which would be called... Second Advent Review and Sabbath Herald. The title was not SEO optimized. So let's all wave goodbye to the present truth and the Advent Review. So long, nice knowing you. Wait, what's that? 
The present truth will be published again in the 1880s in England with articles from J.N. Andrews and Ellen White. Sigh. So I guess it's more like a see you later then. Once again, the paper was sent out for free, relying on donations. If you did donate, however, your name would be printed in the paper. The first issue records donations of $17. Woo-hoo. James asserted that it would be printed frequently, which it was, sometimes. It really came down to money and time, which is the usual culprit in creative endeavors. But those who got the review loved it. For the scattered flock, a printed page delivered regularly made them feel a part of something bigger. At the top of the masthead was quoted Revelation 14.12, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. That verse, perhaps above all the others in the Bible, encapsulated what these Sabbatarian Adventists were trying to do. Underneath the verse, it gave the names of the publishing committee, James White, Samuel Rhodes, J.N. Andrews, and Joseph Bates. The old boy was coming back around. The first issue of the review covered, you guessed it, the Sabbath. But the headquarters didn't stay in Paris for long. Old Edward Andrews, who originally invited the Whites to live with him for free, decided he wanted to charge them $20 a year plus $1 a week for food. That doesn't seem like a lot of money, and so James agreed. But when he learned that a local newspaper editor paid only $1.50 per week for food at a local tavern, food that was, James didn't mind saying, so much better than the cornbread and potatoes Edward seemed to serve them every single day, James was going crazy. He was working like a dog and staying up until 2 to 3 a.m. to proof the paper, and on top of that, he was constantly hungry and tired of Edward Andrews's food. So he and Ellen moved out. This irritated Edward Andrews, who loudly proclaimed to all who would listen that the Whites had cheated him for $8. For years and years afterwards, Edward Andrews would be a thorn in the side of the Whites, how could this James White man lead the church, he would say, when he ripped me off of my $8? Or how could his wife be a prophetess when she ripped me off of $8? I mean, I know it was a lot of money back then, but dude, it's $8. It's really unclear what really happened, and it seems to be a misunderstanding of some sort. But between the two men, it's easier to side with James on this one. He was pretty careful and had integrity, and Edward had the whole history of... I don't think Jesus wants me to work thing going for him, and it just seems like he remained a touch imbalanced afterwards. In any case, James White essentially said, ain't nobody got time for this nonsense, and he and Ellen moved yet again for Rochester, New York, where they could find a little peace. In the end, Ellen was right to support James through his discouragement about printing. She kept him going for two years, helping him keep his eye on the ball. The result, with the review was that the Adventist church was growing like crazy. Leaders were springing up to help the three overworked founders, and they were increasingly looking beyond New England. The Second Advent Review and Sabbath Herald multiplied their forces, appearing in places that they could not. And more importantly, it would last. It would go through many name changes, but it's still coming out today, every week, 166 years later, as the Adventist Review. James felt the enterprise almost cost him his life and his sanity, but he had done it. The publication of the review 
brought in an era of stability and consistency to the movement. And boy, that sure wasn't easy. Speaking of the movement, it was growing like a really awesome weed. But that's for next week.
Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Avenus History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>